out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the American musician and composer Pat Irwin, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry. He was part of that scene that grew out of New York City, the new no-wave scene in the late 70s, early 80s was in various bands, including Eight-Eyed Spy, and also the Ray Beats, was also a member of the B-52s from 89 through to 2008, and he's currently performs and records with SUS, S-U-S-S, who have released several albums and has got one in the pipeline and some dates, and has done lots of film scores and various other bits and pieces, but you'll find out more about that everything else in this interview so after several minutes of interest and but casual chat we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years pat it's over to you well, i've had several but the first you know i'm about a decade older than you a little under a decade older so clearly you know watching the beatles on television on the ed sullivan show was a life changer yes. you know that opened up another world um and, you know, at the same time, there was an entire British invasion of bands like, you know, the Rolling Stones and the Kinks and the Animals that, that that I was seeing. But at the same time, I was also becoming very aware of film music, particularly the music of James Bond movies. Mm. And that was a real awakening, Goldfinger and Thunderball. And I would say that was the first real awakening of that I had um later ones would have been Bowie as you mentioned and then the clash and Susie and the Banshees and I was living in London around that time so I saw Wire and Susie and the Banshees and the clash and avant-garde American jazz at the oh god what was the name the center the Arts Center in downtown London. It, um, but it the, anyway, was it the Roxy or somewhere like that? No. Well, I went. I I saw. You know, I was in pubs and clubs, but there was also. Uh, it wasn't the Battersea. It doesn't matter. But I saw like Anthony Braxton and the Art Ensemble of Chicago and. Um. British musicians like Derek Bailey, uh, and they were just—it was a real life changer. Yes, so absolutely. I, I, I had many, I had many, um, many awakenings. Yes. I continue. This is this is always important if we want to keep um, keep alive, really. But did you did your parents? Did you have sort of parents that had an influence on you, you know, musically or culturally? Did they sort of have sort of anything on their walls or in their bookshelves or on the record player that they turned you on to at all, which kind of opened your mind? No, not at all. That was it. That was but, it. But no, they liked music. Uh, they particularly liked, my father liked jazz, um, Ella Fitzgerald, Benny Goodman. He liked singers, uh, but he liked Benny Goodman a lot. Um, but they were not musical 
and nor did they encourage me to be a musician. Yes. But it happened and they, you know, they didn't have much choice. So that's that. There you go. Did you, I mean, when you got to sort of the ripe old age of, I suppose, 15, 16, this was the late, the very end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s. Did you sort of experience that kind of period from sort of, I suppose, 67? I'm not thinking you were taking lots of acid at that stage, but, you know, the summer of love in 67 with, you know, various kind of happenings, kind of certain albums coming out, the excitement of the Woodstock moment. But then, you know, the next period, which was the death of Hendrix, Morrison, Joplin, Brian Jones the year before, and then, you know, Altamont. And, and it seemed like the 60s had started so beautifully. Well, not started, but that mid-period was so beautiful. And then suddenly the party, the party gets a bit sort of depressed. Did you, did you sort of at that age, did you have that kind of sense of things going on and sort of happening and thinking, blimey, I'm just about to hit 16 and and suddenly there's been this massive shift. Well, you know, there was a whole bunch of American music coming out of California that, that, that had kind of a hippie idealism to it. Um, you know, you that was undeniable. Um, but I didn't buy into it. I, I liked it enough. Yes, but I didn't. You know, I really like the Who. I really like the Kinks, and I liked I liked American. I liked classical music too. You know, I liked I liked whatever I could get my hands on. But you know, the dominant Woodstock culture. The and I love that movie. Man, I went with my dad to see that movie. I remember that. I remember being blown away by Sly and the Family Stone in that movie. But I, and I, I can't pretend that I didn't like Crosby, Stills, and Nash. I did, but I, <laughs> I didn't take long, and I didn't buy it. So it was yeah. just really a big, refreshing thing when I got to hear bands like you know Iggy Pop or the MC Five or from England, you know, a little bit later, Roxy Music or Bowie, you know, bands that, and then of course later the Ramones. Yes. Just whatever bands, Patti Smith, Television, Talking Heads, Blondie, the, the Modern Lovers, oh my goodness, the Modern Lovers changed my life. The Dolls, you know, this That's is stuff that, this is what I wanted to hear. These were people I wanted to know. This was music I wanted to listen to. And yes. they were just, they, it was no nonsense. Yes. And when did you sort of, you know, go from being just interested in music to thinking, no, I want to be a little bit more, I want to be on the stage. I want to be in the recording studio. When did you get an instrument? When did a musical instrument appear in your life? Well, I started taking clarinet lessons at a very young age. And those clarinet lessons were really impactful and they are stuck with me to this day. I'm serious about that. I was studying with a, a, a bass clarinetist from the Cleveland Symphony. My family was living in Cleveland and the guy's name was George Zetzer. And he was tough and he was good. And he taught me about discipline and practice. 
but I really wasn't allowed to have a guitar. It, I couldn't have a guitar. And then eventually I bought a guitar, but I had to keep it at the neighbor's house. And I was, I was, um, but at a very young, pretty young age, I started to play. I played in a band. We did play Crosby, Stills and Nash songs, but then I played in a band that would play bars. I, I knew, I knew about working mm -hmm. as a musician. Um, I didn't really know about being original. I knew that if you played the Air Force Base, you had to make everybody happy by doing, keeping a moving on the dance floor. And I learned that at a pretty young age. Yes. Um, and I learned, you know, like, or you get stuff thrown at you, which happened. But um, that I was young. And I had a steady gig playing down at the bar at the, on the interstate. So, you know, I was working, kind of keeping it, hiding it from my parents. Um, and then, like I said, my, my, in 1975, I went away to school in London. And that changed everything because I was living in a city that was vibrant with music and things were changing in London rapidly. Um, and I was there for that. And um, luckily I got to peek in that door. Yes. And when I, I came back to the United States and finished up college and then I, after college, I moved to Paris. I had a grant and I was living in Paris. And um, that's when I knew that all I really wanted to do was come back to New York City and play either CBGBs or Max's Kansas City. Yes, and it's I interesting because it's interesting because a couple of probably last year I did an interview with a woman who was in the band. It was one of the people in the band of Susans called Susan Stenger, and she had a sort of quite a kind of experience when she was 16. I think she wanted to work with, she'd worked with John Cage and then sort of got sent over to Czechoslovakia to study there, even though she couldn't speak the language and then moved around. Did you, were you also quite a proficient and, and obsessive kind of young person at that stage, just wanting to be pushed to the limits of, of your musical kind of um, horizons? Absolutely. When I was in Paris, I, I, actually worked with John Cage. I was, I signed up to be in a composing workshop. And I uh, was, I performed and with John Cage and got to experience his world. Yes. His, his universe. It was a life changer. It was beautiful. I would imagine. It, was, um, it must have been, because you were young. I mean, you know, she was also quite young and said, look, if you really like this type of classical music, you need to play with this guy. And just happens to be in Czechoslovakia and Americans can't go there, but we'll somehow smuggle you over there. You can't speak the language, but don't worry. That's just small details. I mean, she did it. I mean, I'm just, you know, hearing your story sounded very sort of similar with these kind of paths crossing with people like John Cage and going to Paris when you're still relatively young. You probably, oh, I suppose there would have been a language issue sometimes. But um, yeah, it, culturally, it must have been quite extraordinary going from New York to Paris and into Europe. Oh, extraordinary. I didn't go from New York. I went from Iowa. So I went from the country to uh, 
Paris. I mean, this was a real big city I was living in, you know, really for the first time. And um, I got to meet some extraordinary people and artists. And at that point, you know, to your point, that's when I really knew that I wanted to come back to New York and, and play music. I wanted it, and I just haven't stopped since. Yes, absolutely. Did you at that stage, I mean, because there was also, I mean, I had an older brother who introduced me to that world of prog rock and um, such like with people like Yes and Genesis and Wishbone Ash. Did, did any prog music ever sort of give you any kind of excitement or curiosity or was it kind of jazz and then punk that sort of was the, the real catalyst? Yeah, I had a prog rock moment. Which one? Yeah, I, 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 de I definitely had a thing for Yes and Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. I still kind of like Yes. Um, you know, I, I, I went there. I saw, you know, I think I, yeah, no, I definitely saw King Crimson. I love No Pussy Footing, that first record with Eno. Yes. Everything about that record, the cover with the weird mirrors and the, way they they looked um and the music was so weird i loved it so yeah. i was definitely i was definitely into that i was in a band called the ray beats which was formed with um three guys that were in the contortions they they right. had been on a, a record produced by brian Eno called no new york and yes. uh and I formed, I was in a band with um, Lydia Lunch. This is Eight-Eyed Spy, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. And uh, it didn't last very long, but Ray Beats lasted a little bit longer. And we had a friend who actually worked for Yes. And um, so the first time that the Ray Beats played England and Europe, we actually got to borrow equipment from Yes. And so we had Yes's first amplifiers, which were matching orange tie-dyed Fender Dual Showmans. Excellent. Um, yeah, really excellent. Alan White, he had a rehearsal. They there was a he had a barn with all the Yes equipment, and he said, "Yeah, you can borrow whatever you want." And it all looked kind of awful and weird. And then underneath this tarp. In the corner was this matching orange tie-dye stuff with that very first Yes logo on it. And it was like, oh, well, that's that's what I'm talking about. So this we borrowed that. Yeah, that yes. was cool. Good old Alan White. What a beautiful man. Yes, um, yes, he played a very early gig in 1971 with um, Terry Reed. Glastonbury yeah. Festival. He was just such a dude, actually. So, um, but then, but yeah, before then. So, when you first got into Eight Eyed Spy, was this kind of a because one thing I've noticed, and it's a bit of a sweeping statement, but what the hell? I mean, American punk seems a lot more eclectic and arty than the UK punk scene. You know, it it's you know the UK punk quickly became quite a cliched and just very rock and roll and macho, whereas America and especially New York had this a lot more different sort of rhythms and styles and punk didn't just mean looking like Sid Vicious and sort of having a bit of a style. It sort of, it encompassed, I suppose, much more kind of the gay community. There was kind of rockabilly, psychobilly. There was kind of, you know, 
there was just a lot more different sort of types of people about. So did, you know, and then you had Z Records, which brought in this whole other world. You had people like the Mumps, didn't you, with dear old Christian Hoffman, his gang, Andy Warhol, all those kind of Keith Herring. So, you know, the, the, that New York scene, and you had CBGBs and Max's Kansas City, it did seem very exciting at that stage. Did you just want to be much more experimental, you know, when when you got together as that sort of lineup with Lydia? I don't know that it was all that conscious. You know, oddly, you just mentioned Christian. We, our first, Lydia was friends with Christian and Bradley Field, who was in, and we rehearsed at Christian's loft down on the Bowery, a uh, little tiny room where we got, did a lot of practicing. I think the musical inspiration for Eight-Eyed Spy really was driven by George Scott who had a wildly eclectic taste in music. And he and Lydia really wanted to form a band. Lydia didn't want to be in Teenage Jesus anymore, and George didn't want to be in the contortions. Yes. And so we, you know, luckily I was part of that. And I think George was really driven to some unique musical places. And I think Lydia was too. Um, and we covered a lot of songs, and I think we, I mean, I, Lydia liked cartoon music, Lydia liked Satie. I remember I was making Lydia's rec solo record, and she talked about Eric Satie. Yes. You know, her record, Queen of Siam, and I remember talking about cartoon music, and and I remember talking about the band Suicide, and the Cramps, and I, I don't think it was as much that it was something that we set out to do as as much as it was in the air. That's the way New York City was at that time. Yes. I know. You know, it's... there were choreographers, Philip Glass, Steve Reich, Ornette Coleman. I mean, everybody wanted to play in hip hop, in rock clubs. They were all filmmakers were in bands choreographers were dancing in rock clubs everybody was part of this energy of new york city and uh it was a pretty spectacular place i so i don't think it was you know like a blueprint i think it was in the air yes alongside i guess as well i know this is like the simplified version of new york but i guess it had been sort of quite run down and and was cheap to live to get a place i know i spoke to a guy who wrote the book the Mud Club, and he said he bought a place which was very cheap. And various people said well, you could just go and stay in a loft in an apartment, and it was just very dirt cheap at that stage. And also, you know, it theoretically is the birth of, you know, um, I suppose everyone will claim it a bit, but, you know, hip-hop, uh, rap music, punk music, you know, disco all came out of New York in, in that sort of very small period of time. So, and then you had the, you know, the artistic community as well as these clubs. So I guess it did breed a lot of kind of creative kind of fluidity between different people and different groups. Yeah, it's all about the real estate. You know, I mean, cheap rent was important, but it was bleak. You know, I had a loft in the Flower District, huge, where I spy rehearsed. Uh, but there was no heat at night, no hot water, no heat on the weekends, no bathroom. No. Well, no, there was a toilet. There was no shower, no kitchen. 
it was just this raw space. It was pretty bleak. And, um, you know, I, I didn't know any better. I mean, and a lot of us did that kind of thing. You know, we had places like that. My rent was $60 a month. <laughs> so I could, you know, I could be in a band and then eat dinner down at the bar at the happy hour. I could have a beer and eat bar food for nothing. Yes. Um, we all did that. It's interesting, isn't it? There was a book that came out a few years ago, I'm just looking at it, by Duncan Hanna, a 20th century boy who um, sort of wrote about that experience in the 70s during sort of New York in the 80s. And Yeah, I, I, I knew Duncan. I just found the book that he signed. I love that book, 20th Century Boy. It, it captures a certain a book. And, there's, and then I did an interview with Martin, is it BC, who did BC Studios? I think Brian Eno was part of helping him develop that with Bill Laswell as well, which sounded like one of those loft studio places that a lot of avant-garde bands and artists recorded in as well, like the Swans and such like. Yeah. So I guess there was kind of a lot of coming together. And I would love to have remembered it, but a few weeks ago I did an interview with two people who did a, who just made a film, something like We All Want to Be Famous, about a particular artist in New York that no one ever sort of really heard of until quite, you know, I suppose he, he kind of slipped between Basquiat and Keith Herring and everybody else and just disappeared in Europe and, you know, they tracked tracked down where he might have died. And, um, yeah, it was kind of interesting just how much is kind of being un unearthed in, in the New York sort of art scene at the moment. So um, everybody's getting their memoirs and archives sorted out, aren't they, really? So, um, yeah, oh, right. Yeah. But also, I mean, yeah. how did you did you sort of manage to navigate away from the drug problem during that time? Because I noticed that or heard for most people that it was very hard not to sort of get become a, a junkie at that stage in life. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that yesterday, oddly, thinking, damn, I made it out of that time alive. <laughs> I, I I I managed to make it out alive. For me, it wasn't drugs as much as drinking, but it was around, and there were plenty of drugs around, and drugs were cheap, and drinking was easy, but I wanted to make music more than I wanted to be drunk. Yes. I wanted to make music more than I wanted to be high. Having George die of a heroin overdose, that was a wake-up call. Having friends die of overdoses and AIDS, you know, it it was, I, I was much more interested in playing music. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Well, I guess it is a bit humbling. We we always think we're quite invincible when we're at that age. We can we can stumble over a pavement. It's not going to be too much of a thing. Later in long, later on in life, stumbling on a pavement could send you to A and E and six months of sort of occupational therapists, which you just want to avoid, really. So, um, yes, bad news. So when your first, when the first band, you know, with Lydia came to a close, did the, the Ray Beats, did that come together quite organically? Did, did the sort of group of you sort of all find each other relatively easily at this stage? Oh, very much so. Um, but they kind of, those bands happened at the same time. Um, almost the exact same time. Maybe, you know, George, again, had an idea to form a an instrumental band. And he wanted to keep playing with Don and Jody, who were in the contortions. Yes. And Don had a loft down on Warren Street. I think the Cramps were next door. Um, 
And we, we just wanted to be an instrumental rock and roll band. And it was pretty organic. I can't believe we did it. You know, we, 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 we rehearsed a couple times and then we started to play. And that's a really important thing point to make is that there were places to play. There were bars and clubs that encouraged us. And it wasn't just the bands. There were clubs that booked us. And they were around the city. Think I'm thinking of Tier 3 and Hillary and, and Hillary Yeager who booked that club. And that's where I saw Glenn Bronca and Reese Chatham and Oh God, who knows, you know, just phenomenal nights. The Bush Tetris first show was yes. with Aaron Spy um, at this club called Tier 3. There was the Mud Club, I think you mentioned the Mud Club, and that was at the end of the alley where I lived. Um, and we could play there. We could play there. And there were other places too, you could really play. And so there was an infrastructure there were magazines that would wrote it right about us. There was a critic named Robert Palmer who wrote, oh, for the yes. New York, who wrote for the New York Times, the New York Times. And there was also the New York Rocker and the Soho Weekly News. And they would write articles So if you in the Village Voice. And so if you had an article about you in the Village Voice, then you could play Washington, D.C. Or, or Toronto. And I'm still in touch with the people that booked me in Toronto. For the first time, Amazing. you know, like you know, um, this is really important. There was a support. There was an infrastructure. It was interesting. And it was I, like so I was going to say it was interesting because I did an interview with um, and a slightly different type of music, but JJ French from the Twisted Sister, who said they spent all the sort of late sixties and seventies just playing constantly, like two, three times a, a night, you know, every every day of the week, just to sort of keep the band going. But they couldn't get a record deal until the early eighties. But the live scene was such that you know a band could keep keep that as their kind of main hustle. They didn't have to particularly get a day job and they would just kind of play constantly. So New York obviously was able to support such a sort of thriving artistic kind of band, you know, mu musical setup really. Couldn't, you know, just that you you could always get that gig and sort of keep it going and kind of exploring. I mean, obviously with them, they eventually got a record deal via Bizarrely the Tube, which was a, a, a sort of program from the UK. But um, that's a long story, really. But yes, but you you obviously with the Ray Beats, you know, had the same thing. You could keep working as a musician full time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, wasn't like a big payday. But we could make a 45. We got a record deal with a, U, a, a UK company. We got a record deal with Beggar's Banquet. And... Um, we were able to make a record. We would make a 45. You could take it down to the bar and put it in the jukebox. You could take it to the strip club and they would play it. And, um, you know, there was a world of music around. There was a world of creativity is a better way to put it. Yes. You know, people were making things. It was, also, it was great. You know, great painters. You mentioned Jean-Michel. But, you know, there, there were other painters too. There was Keith Herring and... Kenny Scharf and 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 maybe I would add like other artists like Robin Winters and there were filmmakers Jim Jarmish and Amos Poe and Betty Gordon and Vivian yes. Dick and 
Now, you know, Nan Golden was making her photographs and people were making things. There were alternative spaces like artist space and the Franklin furnace and the kitchen. Um, you know, there were real places to show this work. Yes. It, it's really important to remember that. And so Guitar Beat, which was your debut album, this was actually recorded in the UK, wasn't it, with Martin Rushett? Um, That's how correct. You, how did you manage to get from New York to to the, the UK? I mean, it's kind of weird because there was a, 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 a rockabilly band called the Rockettes who got picked up from Essex in the UK and taken over to New York by a guy called Lee Black Childers. And sort of, you know, one of the members, Smutty Smith, got photographed by Robert Maplethorpe and it became quite an iconic picture because he's kind of beautiful and got great tattoos. But so, you know, that was quite bizarre because um, most of the band weren't that great as musicians. But how did you manage to go from New York to the UK in, in the opposite direction? Well, I certainly remember the Rockettes well. And I know that the Ray Beats played on bill, bills with them. So I know I knew Smutty. But... um. We just asked him. Somebody at the record company said that they knew Martin and he was just building a new studio. He had just produced Pete Shelley. Yes. And, and he wanted to try out his studio and we were the first band to play in the studio. And there you go. And that, so how long were you in the UK for at that stage? Well, it was a couple weeks to make the record, we stayed in this little town, I think Goring on Thames is what it's called. Yes, Goring on Thames, there you go. Um, Wood Cottage, this sounds like a very, yeah, well, goodness me, yeah. this is the most beautiful place in the world. Yeah, it was great. That was and we, we got, we were the locals, you know, it was fun, down at the pub. And um, we made the record and we came back and the record came out, and then we did a tour of the UK um, with an American band called the DBs, and we played everywhere. Oh, that was a rough tour. We played, we played all over the UK. We played, oh God. Yes, we, the circuit. Well, the UK, as you 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 will not you you realize, is a sort of tiny, tiny place, isn't it? It's like you know, in every city has, you know, which is quite close to each other, really, has a sort of an alternative venue or gig night. So, you know, a lot of bands that I, you know, I've interviewed, you know, that is quite, in the early years, you can sort of feel like you get a bit of kind of action, traction, a bit of movement and feel like you're you're playing in front of people that aren't just your friends and family and anybody else you can emotionally blackmail to go and see you. You can play in front of quite a different crowd of people, which is always good for a, a band. I mean, it was kind of interesting because at that point in the early 80s, I mean, it's it's funny, there's like, no one thinks they're part of the scene, but there are scenes. There's the God scene, there was New Paisley, there was, you know, the post-punk world, Psychobilly, Anarcho-Punk, I won't keep going on. But you you don't really fit in any of those kind of sections, do you? You, you know, it's kind of like a band who's, He's not kind of got a particular kind of, oh, we'll put you in that market, really. So it was kind of interesting that you came out in the early 80s with that sort of a instrumental album. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think it was a huge commercial success. Um, but we managed to play. Yes. And, you know, I mean, as it happens, we were just contacted by a, a label called Ace 
Oh yes. And they're going to they're going to release an album with bands that were produced by Martin Russian and we're going to be on it. Yeah. Um, it's going to be the Stranglers and Pete Shelley and um you know, I'm really, really, really excited about being a part of this record. Yeah, I remember that. Um, I think one of the one of the people in Ace, on Ace or works for Ace Records was in one of these kind of rockabilly bands in the sort of '80s. I can't remember who he was, but I did an interview with him. He was now in California enjoying life, so I would imagine he might be might be quite in part of that project, really. We love vanity projects, but yes. So then you you have that album. Then you 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 sort of follow up with it's only a movie, the second album. So with the band at that stage, were you back in New York recording this particular album? Yeah, we made that record. Well, we actually what had happened is we made a a, a demo with the composer Philip Glass, and we thought, oh, this is great, and um. But we happened to get a record deal with Shanaki, who were kind of a reggae label, a reggae Irish music label. And um, I don't know why they signed us, but we did. They put out our record. And um, it was done in New York. We mixed it at Electric Lady Studios with Joe Blaney, who did a really great job. And... Um, we just kept playing. Uh, we didn't. We didn't really know what we were doing, but we played everywhere. We played all around the country. We L.A. The, we played shows with the Go Go's. We played shows with all sorts of bands, opening uh, all around the country. I don't know how we did it, but we did it. And um, and then when we were done, you know, that 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 demo that we made with Philip Glass got lost. We didn't know where it was. Nobody, we kind of forgot about it. And um, the it was it was really hard. This is around 1984, and it just got really hard for us to keep going. You know, we were. I don't think Shanaki wanted to put out another record with us. We didn't know what to do, so we just kind of fell apart. Yes, because it's interesting at the time, because I didn't know last night, it was a band from America, Romeo Void, and they they kind of had a fantastic sound with a brilliant saxophone player in in the sort of, you know, the the mix as well. Did you, were you kind of, and there was also, you because you mentioned Jim Jamoose, and we all love Down by Law and Stranger Than Paradise and the solo work of, is it John Lowry as well? I mean, you know, we, if you're from the UK, everything looks very exotic and you want to sort of embrace the New York scene. It's when you're young, you're trying to make yourself look and feel more interested than you're than you really are you know we're, we're pretentious at that age aren't we were you kind of you know were you quite influenced with a lot of those kind of you know movements as well and uh, other players well I don't think I was influenced but we were playing at the same time we played many shows with the lounge lizards and I saw them many times and John was around and you know of course everybody knew John and the band and and I've worked with many of the musicians in his band from the Lounges over the years. Yes. And Jim, you know, Jim was in a band on the same label. He was in a band called the Del Byzantines uh, with Phil Klein 
I think was in that band. I don't remember who else, but they were on the same label that we were on. So we played shows with them as well. And, you know, we were just, it was what was in the air. Yes. Um, I don't think I was influenced by them as much as just, we are all making stuff. We were yeah. making things. But I do know in the 80s, we also you know embraced, obviously, art cinema. There was also French films like Betty Blue and Diva and then Rosalind and the Lions. Did you, and the soundtrack to Betty Blue, I think it was very much like Eric Satie. Did you, were you kind of aware and, you know, at all sort of interested in, in those kind of moments as well? You know, fantastic. Yeah, I, I love the soundtrack to Betty Blue. I have it on my computer. I love that. You know, it was a very stylish sound. And um, oddly, I work with a, a director and a showrunner on, on Riss Jackie, on Dexter, New Blood. And he always talks about Betty Blue, the soundtrack to Betty Blue. He always mentions it. And yeah, I was definitely influenced by that. Uh, and and I was influenced by many soundtracks at that time. Oh, uh, can I just, um, I might have to just, oh, wait a minute. You got to do your thing? Go ahead. Wait a minute. Jill? Is it? <laughs> oh, magic. There you go. I'm slightly hoarse. Yes. Sorry about that. So, yeah, just to sort of pick up on that, I mean, as the 80s progressed, in this country, you know, obviously, you know, being the UK, there was kind of different scenes that happened between kind of there was the punk there was the post-punk there was all those other worlds and then sort of 83 to 87 we had the years of the smiths and that great world of indie pop and then sort of around 87 there was another kind of change because there was that world of ecstasy and another musical kind of scene that started how was it for you at that point did you kind of have to sort of navigate any kind of tricky periods doing that I'm not 100% sure what you mean, but let me try there. Um, I had to figure out what to do, you know, like not being in a band anymore was hard. I started to, I, I was working, I was living with a woman named Julia Hayward, who was a performance artist. And I've kind of forgotten about this period of, of my work but i've gotten in touch she's been in touch with me lately and we had a band called t venus with with many different members but it was the idea was kind of a visual cinematic experience of sound and visuals and we played on a tour that was sponsored by a performance space here in this country called the kitchen right um, Reese Chatham was on it. Fab Five Freddy had, uh, and the Rocksteady crew were on that tour. Um, Eric Bogosian, Oliver Lake. Um, and we, it was very eclectic and we toured around and we were making this kind of visual music. Hmm. It, didn't last very long, but thankfully, a record label is going to put some of this music out. And I just found out about this just the other day. Ah, interesting. But, but um, I was, yeah, so I'm very excited about this. We're just going through the tapes now. But, and I'd forgotten about it, but there's a lot of music. 
Don and Jody from the Contortions are on some. I'm on some. Jim Sklavunas from Eight Eyed Spy is on some. He, of course, is now with Nick Cave and the yes. Bats. Um, there were other musicians who were a part of that that band, T Venus. So I'm excited about that. Yes. But I I got a job producing an artist, a woman named Deborah Ayal, who had a band called Romeo Void. Yes, and I, did, I, uh, I, did an I did an interview with the bass player last night. Oh, really? Yes. Benjamin, oh, who, what's his name? Um, Benjamin was the saxophone player. He was a saxophone player, right. He just... Uh, oh, Frank. Can, oh, it was it was Frank I interviewed from from Romeo Frank, Boyd. Yeah, I remember Frank, and yes. like this my friend Julia, the singer from TVNS, she shot a Romeo Boyd video for a, a song called "Girl in Trouble." That's it. Yes. Um, and um. And so I got this job producing a record, and I think it was going to maybe be a Romeo Void record, but then Romeo Void broke up, and then it ended up being a Deborah solo record. And that took quite a lot of time. But I did that, and then I also produced a record by a band called Love Tractor. And in that time, I wrote music for a television show called Tales from the Dark Side. And I wrote some music for a film that Betty Gordon made called Variety. John Lurie wrote most of the music, but I wrote some music as well. And I so I just started to write music for movies and television. And I just started to think, oh, maybe I could do this. Yes. I didn't know how, but I just started to do it. Amazing. And um, how did you find working with Deborah? Was that quite an interesting one? Because this was her kind of strange language. So was this the first time in a, in, in a studio with somebody? No. Uh, well, yeah, no. Uh, Ray Beats had played many shows with Deborah and with Romeo Void. I think Ada Spy did too. So I knew her pretty well. Yes. And um, she liked my bands and we we were friends but i had never produced an album before yeah and it was, it was a pretty big deal i think i think it was on columbia or something or sony and and so it i didn't really know how to make a commercial record but um that's what they wanted they wanted to have a commercial record yeah and how did you find because it was ben Bosi, wasn't he? He was the saxophone player who had been in Romeo Void, and he was also playing on that particular solo album first, who had an amazing sound as well. Did you sort of record him in the studio? I don't remember, but we were friends. Yes. Is, ben is Benjamin on that record? He might be. He is on that record, actually. That was that was yeah. 86 that came out, actually. Yeah. So that was Deborah. And yeah, because at that stage, I think the band had had quite a, an intense period. And I think they were sort of coming to that point where they were sort of slowly going in opposite directions and separate ways and stuff like that. Yeah, it happens. It does happen. This you, you can. It's it's inevitable. It's going to happen, isn't it? Really. So yeah. So performance art. So you'd managed to embrace that world as well, actually. From from sort of um, yes, 
keeping the the, the interest in in sort of not because the cockex can uh, cockex are from San Francisco area, aren't they? So from the sort of late. Yeah, I, late I definitely knew about them. Actually, yes. So then, yeah, that's interesting. So then you got into doing more soundtracks. Was this suddenly something that you thought, ah, oh, this is going to pay the rent and I, I can still keep my artistic integrity doing something that I like? Well, I think that's important to mention that there's a little bit of difference between image, the image of that world and the reality. There's, it, it wasn't like I thought I could make a living at it. There are some composers who know more about that than I do, who are very good at making a living. But I was just making music. I I, I got a job. I had written music for some choreographers, uh, a woman named Meg Eganton, um, a choreographer named Stephen Petronio, uh, a choreographer named Victoria Marks, a choreographer named Pooh Kay. I was just starting to learn to write composite music for ex, you know extended forms not just a a rock and roll song and yes and i performed at my own this i performed music of my own at a space in new york called the, the dance theater workshop an alternative space much like the kitchen but driven by a, a producer named david white and David gave me a chance to perform. And it just so happened that my performance was reviewed in the New York Times. And it just so happened that somebody from the Turner Broadcasting read the review and they were make, they were just starting a network, CNN. Um, and they asked me if I could write for a documentary. And I ended up writing music for a couple documentary films um, produced by Ted Turner. And right. And so um, it wasn't like I said, oh, this will be a way to make money. I, I just I just did it. Um, there wasn't very much money. I was clueless about that. But yes, it was it was it was like, oh, this is a great way to make music. And I like I said, you know, I love soundtracks. Um, to this day, I, I listen to them and. Um, it was a thrill for me to be a part of that world. Yeah, I mean, your your discography, your filmography as a, a as a composer, is quite phenomenal, isn't it? I mean, you really do get into that the rhythm, don't you? From from the late eighties right through decades of just absolutely being. Were you the kind of go to person for sort of a a soundtrack and, and a composition because um up to sort of Dexter, New Blood. I mean you you yeah. don't really have a well, year. I don't on. know. I don't know. I, I, yeah, I don't know if I was a go-to. I mean the the Ray Beats played a show, a really notorious art show in Times Square called the Times Square Show. Yes. And that's where Keith Herring and Nan Golden and Kiki Smith and Jean-Michel, there were photographers and there was music and there was all sorts of stuff in this abandoned storefront on 42nd Street. And somebody from the Nickelodeon network had come down and they were a fan of the rabies. And Nickelodeon was just starting to make cartoons. They had done Ren and Stimpy. 
and they were doing the Rugrats, which Mark Mothersbaugh was writing, and they were starting Rocco's Modern Life. And I was yes. that And so I wrote the music for that cartoon. And that really was a thrill. And just so you know, the music for Rocco's Modern Life is just going to be released in a couple of weeks. Amazing. That is amazing. Yeah, I mean, it is amazing. I'm After so many years of it, never being heard i'm going to start getting some of it out into the air yes i am so absolutely you you wouldn't believe that band and so for four or five years whatever i was making the um music for that cartoon and um at the same time i got a phone call from kate pearson from the b52s who said hey you know we're gonna we're gonna start going out on the road. We're finishing up a record. Do you want to go? And um, I said, hell yeah, I'll be in the B fifty two. So we we that was like nineteen eighty nine. Yes. So I was writing music for these movies and cartoons, and then starting to play with the B fifty twos. My God, that must have been surreal. That was that was when they were. Absolutely, they're high, wasn't it? Well, you know. Well, we didn't start out that way. We It was just going to be like three weeks. We played CBGBs and little clubs, and we made a video for Love Shack, and it just exploded. Yes, Love Shack. That was that was it, wasn't it? That suddenly got another mm -hmm. kick. So you were, you were part of that band from 89 to 2008. That was kind mm -hmm. of quite a nice gig actually so you so you did you did you feel I mean at the time whenever the moment is we never feel like we can quite appreciate it because we're just in it but looking back being able to be in a band like that as well as writing and and composing all this film music was that was that quite a beautiful period for you hell yeah come on man the b52s had two top 10 records at the same time with Love Shack and Rome. Yes. Never in a million years did I imagine that to be possible. People all around the world know who the B-52s are. And they are an amazing, we got to be a really, really good rock and roll band. But we got really good. But this is not your normal rock and roll band. You know, this is not like the Rolling Stones. or We're not playing like blues songs. This is the B-52s, and we're doing songs about Planet Claire and Mesopotamia and hot and lava and dancing, dancing this mess around or whatever. It was yes. fun, man. It was cool. That That's my kind of rock and roll band. Yeah. Really Actually, special. Really nice. The two songs I really love of theirs, I don't know, did you play the um, Private Idaho and also Give Me Back My Man? Were they two that were always in the set, or were they... Absolutely. There's a great video of us doing Give Me Back My Man. Uh, man, chills would go up my spine every time we played Give Me Back My Man. I love that song. Yes. And we really, we really played it. Cindy just is such a gorgeous, powerful singer. Yes. And then, of course, Private Idaho, you know, that is such a unique song. Um. I remember playing that in a, <laughs> excuse me, a stadium in Chile and just in Santiago, I think, 
and having the whole stadium just saying, yelling, you're living in your own private Idaho and going, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> I mean, and then I got to play the boo-doo-doo-doo. I played the keyboard part. And we were just, we had a great drummer, Zach Alford, a great bass player named Sarah Lee, who had, that I, you know, I know both of them. Did I know everyone. I mean, we're still all in touch. Yes. And, um, oh, let, yeah, let me tell you, this is like, I never in a million years imagined I have that opportunity to play around the world. Um, like we did with the B-52s. It was, it was a, it was a glorious experience. Yeah. But then just a bit kind of jumping forward again, you have this other combo, don't you? The ambient country trio, SUS. Double mm -hmm. S. How did that sort of come together? What was the kind of the idea behind this particular musical adventure? Well, one of the members of the band named Bob Holmes had this idea like to form a band that would be kind of based on the idea like what, what would it be like if Brian Eno produced Ennio Morricone? Yes. We were all friends and we would meet, there were five of us actually, and we would meet at this diner on Fifth Avenue every once in a while and just hang out. And we did this for a couple of years, like just having matzo ball soup and French fries and um, talking about music. And Bob said, you know what, let's form a band. And so the five of us formed a band and we made a, our first record called Ghost Box, which you can get on streaming services. And our label yes. picked it up called Northern Spy. And this is music I love. And now we're a trio. One member, Gary Lee, very sadly passed away. And the other guy, um, just William Garrett, was just too busy for for the recording schedule that we had we're now on our fourth record we and we were we've just finished a record for um a double record actually for northern spy and we're going to play play the entire record in about a week at um a, a gallery space here in my neighborhood in new york in 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 long island city yes we're going to play four nights in a row, four Friday nights, each side of the record. Um, and then we're going to play the Big Ears Festival in Tennessee. Amazing. Yeah, because actually you've been as prolific with that as with any of your other musical adventures, really, haven't you? Because you brought out four albums in basically four years. You brought out Ghost Box, then it was Highline, and then wide open sky promise and then night suite as well so um so have you got another album that's just about to be either recorded or um well yeah we have another record that we're making right now but we're really focusing on the music from this double album um the the, the record that you mentioned in there wide open sky is a different record that's a record i made with a friend here in the neighborhood a trombone player named j walter hawks and he also writes music for cartoons and we're just friends and we made it we just decided to make an album yeah so that's not that's not a sus record that's not but, a sus record yes no no 
that's uh but you should check it out it's a good record yeah absolutely um, Go on. I was going to say, I mean, with all the music that you've made and art you've made, have you, over the last couple of years, especially with lockdown, did you start trying to archive some of your bits and pieces and sort of get sort of other little things that have never been properly finished, sort of put, you know, sort of put in some form that you've thought, right, I can sort of nicely think that's been archived and it's now there available for the yeah. world. Yeah, I think about it. I got to, maybe I should do it. I found a box full of tapes. I found some Ray Beats tapes that I'm really excited about. I found that, you know, I'll, I'll start that. I'll do it. I'll, I'll archive. I mean, I've got, you know, I've got some time. Yes. But it sounds like you have a lot of projects on as well. So, um, so with you've got some live dates coming up, and then what else have you got for the rest of the year? Um, well, really, Sus has got some music that we're going to start recording, and I hope to be doing more performing. I'm I'm really super excited about performing at Big Ears, the the, the festival in, in in Knoxville, Tennessee. Yes, you know that's. It's their tenth year anniversary. John Zorn is going to be there. Los Lobos, Calexico, Bill Frizzell. I'm just thrilled to be down there. Um, and hopefully, Sus will do more recording and performing. I'm thinking about performing the music from the cartoon Rocco's Modern Life. Um, that music is going to come out in early April. And then hopefully in the fall, we'll get more music released from that cartoon and I'll perform it. I mean, you wouldn't believe who was in that band. I mean, it was a great band. And um, I would love to play that music somehow. Yes. So yeah, I've got a lot of things in the works. Yes. I mean, if you could have whispered something to your like 16 year old self, 16 year old self starting out is there any anything in particular you would have thought oh yes that would have been a good thing to have been told or that would have been a good thing to have focused on I just wondered because you've obviously got decades of experience and worked with so many people and recorded with so many different uh, musicians I just wonder if there was anything you'd have thought yeah that would have been a, a good thing to have um, known when I started out in this interesting but um, sometimes murky world yeah, it's kind of murky, isn't it? Yes. I I would have liked to have paid a little more attention to the business. I'm not a good business person. And, and it's really easy to forget that it is a business. I, I, I've been lucky to do these soundtracks that have been like Dexter and Miss Jackie and SpongeBob that have been on shows that have done really well. And, and so... I don't have to worry about the business too much. Although, you know, half the music is owned by someone else. I don't own it all. Yes. But I it's wouldn't a... mind. That's that's all. Just knowing a little bit more about the business and knowing that it's okay to get help. Yes, this is true. I mean, and did your and did your parents get to see your musical world take off and and experience some of the kind of highlights and successes you had yeah they were super you know 
as as unsupportive as they were in the beginning, they became very supportive as it went along. They would be at every B-52 show. They even came to see me play with Lydia. They came to see me play with the Ray Beats many times. You know, they were good parents. My parents loved the B-52s. They, my mom, who is still alive, loves telling her friends all about the B-52s. And yeah, you know, that they, they, you know, my dad got to see the B-52s play. He got to see us on Tonight Show and he got to see us on Jay Leno and whatever, you know. So he was aware that that the band was doing well. He was, my dad was a good guy. Yes, well, that's nice. I mean, and also, I mean, was it about 10 years ago you got an honorary doctorate from from a college and then you sort of got into teaching as well was that is has that been a important sort of chapter in your life as well the the educational part and the lecturing yeah I mean yeah I I'm I gotta tell you it's a big deal to me I'd be a little bit I'd be I'd be lost without my students they give me hope and inspiration. Yes. I I am so lucky to have them and I'm so fortunate to be a teacher. I it gives me hope. Yeah. Yes. Well it's it, you know, it's good because I know as one gets older, I mean it's almost like when you're younger, you it would be better to hang out with some older people to sort of, you know get some ideas or get, you know, a few words in your ear, you know, about what's worth doing and what's not worth doing. But then as you get older, it's quite nice to hang out with younger people who are having a different conversation that isn't always about sort of medical appointments or medical ailments and sort of be able to hear what's kind of happening in a different world, which is a very different kind of vibe and conversation. So I think it must be quite nice to be able to sort of slip into a different world and to hear what's going on in other people's kind of universe especially the younger generation because because speaking to a lot of musicians they often don't quite know how new musicians how it works you know even though they've had a lot of period and a lot of their time making music and recording and touring and being on labels they think I don't have a clue how music now works so you must be able to sort of have some idea of what it's like to be a young musician starting out yeah I mean um you know it's it's just i i really believe in the in the power of music and the power of teaching music not all these students are going to end up being musicians and that's just the truth yes but i'd like to think that studying music can prepare them for anything knowing about the Smiths, knowing about the Ramones, knowing about music for film, knowing about rock and roll, knowing about jazz, communicating the language of music. I think it can prepare you for anything. Yes. And I'm 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 very honored and to be a part of it, to be honest with you. I want these students to be successful. 
and and life. And I think that uh, education in the arts can prepare you for that. Yes, I, I absolutely. You have to you have to produce something. You have to get feedback. You have to sort of know how to take it and then know how to sort of do the next move, which is quite um, quite sometimes interesting and slightly humbling at times. So um, it's a it's a it's a good thing to do. I mean. Mm-hmm. Just with your own sort of with your catalogue, if if anybody, you know, was saying, look, what album do you particularly really love that, you know, if you were going to listen to of your work, which one would you sort of pick and say, look, listen to this one? I think you'll like it. What What's your sort of proudest album? I don't know. I mean, I don't think I've made it yet. I'm just so- getting started. Excellent. I have to say, I was just talking to exciting things. Your Big Ears Festival, which is happening very soon, it's got the most extraordinary lineup. I mean, it is going to be quite an amazing event, isn't it? The Big Ears? The Big Ears Festival that you're you're playing yeah, in. It's, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, that's that's kind of that's art with a capital A, isn't it, really? That is that's going to push the boundaries of, of music. I mean, it's going to be quite yeah, yeah. Quite the audience, actually. Is it a very? Do how many people will be there as punters? I have no idea. I, I'll I'll let you know when I get home. Yes, I hope we're playing. You. We're playing. You know, we're playing on the thirty first here at the gallery, and then we're driving all night to get down to Knoxville. I'll I'll let you know how many people. <laughs> I think it's pretty well attended. Yes, it's well, a great festival. I would imagine. It's amazing. Well, look, Pat, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this. This has been so brilliant and I'm really grateful. And it's really nice that, yes, it was Frank from the Romeo Void that I interviewed last night. I think there was another member of the band I might interview as well because they're reissuing all their back catalogue and they've got a live album from 1980 that is just coming out for, I think it's Record Store Day. So it's one of those gigs. So um. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. I just, Deborah just told me about that. So I'm really excited about it. Yes. And it's nice, you know, they've got a great sound. So um, I'm pleased that uh, a lot of these things that have been slightly forgotten or just left in the cupboard has been sort of brought out and re, you know, repackaged and, um, or just released for the first time. So hopefully they'll, they'll, they'll get some more fans and more people know their music because, um, yeah. Yes, it's one of those bands that could have easily been forgotten, which is a terrible thing. But anyway, yeah. there you go. But thank you ever so much, Pat. This has been amazing. So thank you for your time, and have a thank you. Have a nice evening. Um, yes, or afternoon. Anyway, take, yeah. Keep in touch. Take care. You too. You will. Thanks a lot. Take I will. Bye bye. Please. Bye now. Bye bye. And that, dear listener. Is the end of the interview. I'm sure you gathered that. Anyway, a massive thank you to Pat Irwin for giving me the time of that interview. This has been David East or The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.